Good morning, Evergreen. You could open your Bibles for the last time, and probably a very long time. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, (laughs) chapter 16. Definitely at least Mark. It'll be the last time in a long time. We're about to read Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 9, going to 20. And the title of the sermon is Conquering Unbelief, or The One Who Conquers Unbelief. Talking about Jesus, of course, being the person who does that. And unfortunately, I have to spend a little bit of my time conquering maybe some of the doubts that you have yourself, which is, if I'm a preacher of the gospel, it's my duty to preach God's word. And maybe for the first time, and you'll actually, it's maybe the last time that I'll ever have to say this, that what we're coming across in our text, the ISV notes, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. We need to remember that the Bibles that we have in our hands were not written in English, that they were written in Hebrew and Greek, that they were written, some books 4,000 years ago, other books 2,000 years ago, all of it written way before photocopiers existed, way before you could even have a printing press before you could make sure that there were no errors when you copied. Just imagine the fact that if you wanted to own a copy of the gospel for yourself, what would that involve? It would involve the painstaking task of copying every word, word for word. And when that happens, sometimes mistakes are made. It's at this point that sometimes our faith is disrupted, especially when we see things like this. We can calm our doubts, though. Because, let's be real, there's only two texts this large that are disputed in the New Testament entirely. This one, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. And John 7:53 through John 8:11. It's just those two. Every other copyist error is a word here, spelling differences, differences in translation between one language to the other. Some copyists, when they translated it, were more faithful, others less so. But what we're dealing with here is a book that we have. An amazing attestation to its reliability throughout history. When it comes to whether or not we know that the words that we have were written by the apostles, we have more reliability in our text than we do the ancient works of Homer, Caesar, and even a couple years ago, I figured out Shakespeare. I think it was about five years ago that we discovered that one of the plays we thought Shakespeare wrote wasn't written by Shakespeare. That can happen. But it doesn't happen to the New Testament because we have over 25,000 manuscripts into various 
languages. Of any book of antiquity, if we know which words the apostle wrote or which words the original author wrote, it'd be this one. That's an amazing thing. For God, yes, immediately inspired the apostles who wrote down God's word. That same level of inspiration did not transfer to every single copyist. But you know what God has done? In providence, he has taken care to keep his word pure in all ages. Where we can hold our Bibles and we can say, this is the word of God. But then we come to this text. If what I'm about to read to you, God's word. Well, there's two things that you look at. If you want to know which words belong to the original author and which ones don't. It's external evidence and internal evidence. And I'll just go ahead and spoil it for you. My sermon's not going to be about text criticism and the science of it. So don't worry about that. What my sermon's going to be is about this word. Because I am convinced that this is Mark's gospel. His full ending. There's... Different in the manuscript tradition, there's about five different endings, but really three of those are pretty obviously insertions where a scribe was making a comment that eventually got left in because people, when they copied the scriptures, conserved everything. Which is a good thing, by the way. So really there's only two different endings, possible endings of Mark. It either ends at verse 8 or it ends at verse 20. And when you gauge that, honestly, when it comes to the external evidence, looking at various manuscripts, it can be hard to get your mind around and hard to, desert, uh, to navigate those waters. But I think maybe something significant in there is that if you're going to say that 9 through 20 was added, it would have to be added later. How much later, though? Because we have... We have two, only two manuscripts that leave out verses 9 through 20. And those documents were written in the 300s, which is very old. One written in the uh, late 200s to 350, and the other one in the maybe 400, which is extremely old. It's amazing that we have anything like that. But those two leave this out. But prior to that found a quote by Irenaeus, an early church father, that in his, one of his books, he quoted from Mark chapter 16, verse 19, from this book in the year 175 to 185. So if this is not part of our Bibles, it was an extremely early edition, at a time which editions are not likely to happen. The other part, which we're going to kind of discern as we read, is the internal evidence. When people read the text and they say, does this sound like Mark? Does any of the teaching in here contradict Mark? And I have to be honest with you that when looking at it, I found all of those arguments not very good. I didn't find any unique vocabulary. Verse 8 has more unique words in it than uh, or almost as many unique words as 9 through 20 in general. 
that the style of writing does not feel that different. That the odd teachings that we see in it, when we compare with other scriptures, actually harmonizes rather well. The point is, when I, what I'm about to read, I fully believe, is God's word. And if you really like the subject of text criticism, come up and talk to me about it. I'd love to explain it to you. I'd love to debate or have a conversation. But let's hear God's word to us. Starting at verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things... He appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves. And they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation or to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out. And preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. And confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Once again, if you are making up this story, even if you're adding a concluding thought to Mark, so that you don't leave the women running away in fear... What you probably wouldn't do is emphasize so powerfully the doubt of those who come and see Jesus. Unbelief in this context is pretty striking, isn't it? Unbelief at the end of a story in which we're speaking of real things, it's not what you'd put at the end of a story. What you'd put is hope. Optimism. Everyone believing. Everyone acknowledging. That's not reality. If we're honest with ourselves, unbelief is not so surprising to us. Or at least that's not really the first word that comes to our minds. When I think of unbelief, of the people that I share the good news with, 
probably the words that come to my mind is pain, grief, shock, frustration, anxiety, maybe even depression. We've seen it ourselves, haven't we? We speak to our neighbors, our good friends, distant, close family members who never believe, who don't listen to a word that we say and don't even give us the time of day to explain it. And our heart breaks for them. But even some of us in this room have not just seen people who never believe and never listen, but we see exactly what we have in this text, which is disciples, people who followed the Lord Jesus Christ, express unbelief, refusal to listen. That's especially when the pain comes in, when the grief over our loved ones, because we know who Jesus is. We know what sin deserves, and we fear for them. If they don't fear for their own soul, we fear for their soul. We get frustrated. We get anxious. And sometimes, when it's those closest to us, we get depressed. We find it hard to get out of bed, just knowing the looming thought. And just as every week, I can tell you, Jesus is the answer. But how? That's always the most important question, is how is Jesus the answer? And Jesus gives us three things. These words are not the fill in the blanks, by the way. He tells us, he addresses the problem. He shows us his methodology. And then he shows us his solution. He confronts the problem, he commissions a method, and then he gives us a solution. So how does he confront the problem? Well, we see it quite clearly. Two different separate instances in which someone had a manifestation. Jesus appeared to them. They saw Jesus. They were, had an account they gave it to the 11 disciples, and they were rejected. And then in the middle of the road, verses 12 through 13. In the road, Jesus appears. He manifests himself to them. And maybe the very first thing that people struggle with, which means another form, that word in verse 12. Which here, Jesus, first of all, definitely had the same body which he rose with. John chapter 20, verse 17, says that he still had scars in his hands, in his feet, in his side, which you could put your finger on. But this another form is still true. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 47 says that when he rose again from the dead, it wasn't just a resuscitation like Lazarus. He didn't just come back to life. He came back glorified to eternal life with a heavenly body, which could appear 
behind locked doors. I don't know what that means he's made of, but it means he's different. The resurrection life that we're looking forward to, which Jesus already has, is another form, and that's a valid way to word it. But still, after this appears, the same thing happens. Eyewitness testimony is presented to the apostles, and they refuse to believe it. And Jesus comes up and does what he always does throughout the Gospel of Mark, which is rebukes unbelief. One scribe added a verse right here, right after verse 14, to explain this. But this is nothing new to Mark's gospel, that Jesus would rebuke strongly unbelief. Specifically, unbelief and hardness of heart. And just a reminder, hardness of heart does not mean just simply unfeeling. It means dull-minded. It means stubborn refusal, whatever that looks like, whether it's your heart, it's your will, or your mind. Stubborn refusal to believe. We have an illustration of this. John chapter 20, which I've quoted, quoted already. One of the times that Jesus appeared to the disciples, Thomas was not there with them. John chapter 20, verse, 20, uh, verse 25 Thomas expresses his doubts, his skepticism, and he says, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark, into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is what we're talking about here with a stubborn refusal. And Jesus appears to him a week later on Sunday morning and says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, What? Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What is Jesus advocating for here? Is Jesus telling every human being, put the mind of your skeptic away. Don't question any testimony that's given to you. Especially if they te testify to something that's miraculous that has happened in their life. You need to believe them. No matter what. Always give them the benefit of the doubt. Jesus is not calling us to naive, gullible acceptance of a testimony. What Jesus is commanding here is response to eyewitness evidence. But not just any eyewitness evidence. Let me read the last two verses there. Right after he said, blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. Verse 30, which comes right after 29 says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. Everything that happened, when it comes to the resurrection, it's not just a mere acceptance of eyewitness testimony, but it's eyewitness testimony that corroborates, let me know if I said that word, Right later. 
that corroborates the evidence of Jesus' own prophecies, his own word, that fulfills the words of Scripture. Jesus' own direct words and filling what must happen, which must take place. When John runs into the tomb and sees that the tomb is empty, they believe, but it says they believe because they had yet to understand the scriptures that he must be raised. What the disciples need to learn in this moment is what we have to deal with. They too would go to the world preaching eyewitness testimony of God fulfilling by miraculous powers his scriptures. That's the message they proclaimed to people who did not have that experience. That's what we do too. It's our problem, which is why it's so important that we establish, I tried to seek to establish at the outset, that what we have in our gospels, and all four of them, are reliable eyewitness testimonies to the fulfillment of all God's promises for salvation. This is a true statement. Seeing is believing. But don't let that go too far. Not only the things that you see are true. To say I only believe in what I've seen is absolute nonsense. It's ludicrous. It's crazy. If you believe in only the things you have seen or personally experienced in your life, I hate to inform you that you've never seen the laws of logic. You've never seen a mathematical proof. You've never seen love. And you haven't seen the vast majority of history. Just to say, I only believe what I can see. is stubborn and illogical. This is the problem. This is the problem we all face when we go out into the world. But what's the method? That's, how, that's the problem when Jesus conquers all doubt. That's the first point. Jesus conquers all doubt. But he also conquers the world with a very specific method. Jesus conquers all doubt. He conquers unbelief. And Jesus conquered the world by a very specific method. Look at verse 15. It's a commission. He gives this method as to go into all the world, that is, everywhere, and proclaim or preach the good news which if you look throughout the whole book of Acts, it's the good news is summarizes he is risen. Or 1 Corinthians 15, that he died according to the scriptures for our sins and was raised according to the scriptures for, uh, in accordance with the scripture. He proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And I translated, also it could be translated as to every creature. Absolutely, everyone, indiscriminately, we are told to preach the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. That's the task. That's the method. Preaching. 
to stubborn-hearted people. And the stakes are really high, aren't they? The stakes that Jesus lays out in verse 15, or 16 rather, that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. Before you struggle with this, which this is the next thing that people struggle with and say is unorthodox teaching that's not consistent with the rest of the New Testament. If you believe that, you're going to have a problem when you listen to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost Pentecost, on Acts chapter 2. When he tells them to, when they ask him, Peter, what shall we do? Verse 38 of Acts chapter 2, Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Not saying it's not confusing, it is. But we have the problem elsewhere. It's not just isolated to this text. Why does he say that whoever believes and be baptized will be saved? Why does Peter say whoever repents and is baptized uh, for the forgiveness of sins will be saved? In both instances, it's not the washing away of water that is the point of Ephesus. We have a parallelism here. Those who believe, saved. Condemned, or don't believe, condemned. That's the point of emphasis. That's the point that bears repeating. And Peter, when he says it in verse 40, 40, that he continued to preach to them. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. But how did he explain it? Looking for it. Oh, this is why I thought I bolded it. He told them those who received his words. Acts chapter 2, look between verses 36 and 41. Should be bolded, but it's not. That Peter, he explains the fact that those who were there who received his teaching. What does that mean? Those who believed, those who received his received his teaching, were added to the church. It means believe. That's the point of emphasis. The point here in both texts is that believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is not an isolated, individualistic thing that you do. That when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to his body. You are incorporated into the church. When you are saved and believe, you are told to embrace the promises that are held out to us in baptism, that our sins would be washed away. And when we embrace those promises, we also hold them out to our children. People who believe are set apart to serve and worship the living God. That's the point. And Jesus gives... Not just the showing the, the command, the stakes of it, but then he gives them an assurance in verse 17 and 18 of signs. We're told in verse 20 that these signs that accompany those who believe are signs of his work. 
that Jesus is among us working out our salvation. That he's the one who's confirming his message. We get maybe our next thing that might throw us off. If you're looking at this list between verses 17 and 18 of the signs accompanying those who believe, one that usually strikes people as odd is the instance of a snake that bites them. Well, this actually happens in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verses 1 and 6, we see Paul bit by a viper. The people think he's going to die any moment because of how poisonous that viper is. And Paul doesn't die. Unless we be confused, Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus commissioned his disciples with authority, specifically in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What we see in all these and maybe the one that you should, the one that should stick out to you that's not evidence in the New Testament is if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Which that one, you know, it kind of gave me a little bit of comfort at least to realize that the same person, Papias, who told us Mark wrote this gospel as written as a disciple of Peter writing down his sermons is the same guy that told us of a man who drank poison and didn't die. I don't know if that happened or not. I'll be honest with you. But the point here is that Jesus is telling his people that the same power he has, the same Holy Spirit that empowered his old ministry, that showed strength over the powers of darkness, is the same powers that will indwell his disciples that will confirm that they are preaching the same message as the Lord Jesus Christ, and none of the powers of darkness will be able to hurt them if Jesus so chooses to preserve them. That's the point. Nothing will hurt them. And while we don't, are not given, even in this text, any expectation that every single time this will happen... And by the way, Jesus' message was already authenticated, confirmed by signs in the New Testament era. We have that same message. We don't preach a different gospel. We don't need new signs to confirm our message. What we do is the same thing that everyone has throughout Christian history have done since the second century. Which is to point to the signs of the New Testament that confirm our faith. But it's really important that we don't miss our job description. What's the method? The method is to tell everyone, everywhere, the only message that leads to salvation. The hope of an individual is pinned on how they respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. What about election? What about predestination? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but what is revealed belongs to us. Do you want to know if someone's elect? 
How do they respond to Jesus? Do they profess faith? Then they're gods. They belong to him. Anyone who professes faith is conjoined evergreen. Why? Because you are the elect of God. What you need to know is your mission and the method, which is to preach God's good news everywhere to everyone and leave the results to God because they're in his hand. And that's the last point that we have. That Jesus ensures the victory from his throne. Jesus is the one who ensures the victory from his throne. Look at where he is. Verse 19, so then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's where Jesus is currently. He hasn't left since this moment. When Jesus rose from the dead, his ascension was not finished. He still had more rising to do. He rose to the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there from this position of power and authority? We're told he's working. Do you see that? Jesus has rested from his work of redemption, accomplishing salvation. And what happens in verse 20? They went out to preach everywhere. Well, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Jesus, while he's sitting on his throne, is working. Working to do what? From his throne, he's sending out his people. From his throne, he is worked, the Lord worked with them using those he sent out to preach. To do And how else does he work? He himself, from heaven, confirmed the message that his disciples brought. In that same sermon in Acts chapter 2, we're told that Jesus confirmed his words, that Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And that's exactly what the apostles did. They had their message confirmed. And it's the same message that we preach. Jesus, then, is the one who ensures the victory. The problem is unbelief. The method is preaching the gospel to everyone, everywhere, indiscriminately, should be every time. And the victory is due only to Christ alone. Our situation's the same. We present eyewitness testimony to people. Our task is the same. We preach the resurrection and death, or the death and resurrection of Christ as the salvation to anyone who believes. And we have assurance of success. What's the biggest hamper on our free offer of the gospel to people? I think we often go out and we have despair. 
It's the same problem that we have with unbelief when we look at our loved ones. We despair. We get frustrated. We are anxious. But what if when you speak and you open your mouth to proclaim God's good news and God's message, what if when every time you open your mouth, you knew it'd be successful to accomplish God's purposes? Wouldn't that bolster your confidence? What if every time you open your mouth, you knew God would use those words? And not our ideas, not our wisdom, but the words that God uses are his very own and his very own message. That every time you open your mouth, you know it will be successful. You know people will come to salvation. And if you're doing it truly indiscriminately, truly offering it freely... We should have the expectation that souls will be saved. That whatever the unbelief we see can be defeated. Do you believe that when you're speaking to people? Do you? That the gospel is the power of God to save sinners? Have you believed it? Or are you still in an illogical leaving out not believing and claiming these promises that you can have salvation. And I'm not completely unaware of our situation too at Evergreen Community Church. I think a lot of us also struggle. We also tend to lose heart. We've had people go plant churches. People leave us. We've had conversations with people. We've had family members drift away. All these things tend to discourage us. Tend to frustrate us. We work hard. We set up. We serve. We preach. But we don't see results. We get anxious. Is God going to keep a church in Powhatan? We get despairing and depression... And the thing that I want to make sure is that we don't get depressed in the sense of not having activity. Stop doing what we're supposed to do. We've been given a method. We're here to worship God. We're here to proclaim the gospel. And we can't let our sadness or our current situation lead us to not preaching the gospel. To not going out into the world. Our task is to be faithful. And we should be faithful with optimism. Realistic optimism. Knowing that we will be successful. That God will keep a church in Powhatan that preaches the gospel. Because he's, his mission in extending his church is to go throughout the entire world. Jesus will conquer the world by the power of his spirit. It will be successful. It might not happen in our time. It might not happen the ways that we would like. But we need to have a realistic optimism, not naively, realistic because of who sits on the throne, who is able to conquer unbelief, who is able to, who gave us this method, is the only one who can fulfill the solution. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, 
we confess that we often lose heart. That we don't, we're not optimistic, faithful servants, but we get depressed so easily. We let just about anything stop our mouths from proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that your spirit would give us an unshakable optimism of the success of Jesus' gospel going out into the world and saving souls. Lord, for those in this room who do not believe or who do not have a heart for the lost or for maybe even people in general, Lord, we pray that we be shaped into the image of Christ that our first prayer of holiness and to obedience to all Jesus' commands, that we would mirror His love for the lost, the freeness of the gospel He preached to the world, and that we would leave the results to You. And Lord, we pray and we believe that You are able to open the heart of even the most hard-hearted sinner. And we pray that You would do so even in this moment. And that they would know that the response to this method of the gospel proclaimed, that they would know that it is calling out to you for mercy. That you will save every sinner who turns from their sin and turns to you. And that you will save them not on the basis of their goodness, but on the basis of what Jesus has done to save us. Lord, may you now work in their hearts to call out to you. For you will answer. We are sure of that. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.